A favorite passage of scripture never grows old. That song is like that. No matter when you hear it, where you hear it, it just never grows old. And the reason it doesn't is because of the power of the words. It is a prayer that is being sung. When the disciples said to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, that's what Jesus gave them. We call it the Lord's Prayer, but it would be better called the model prayer because it is a beautiful way to teach us to pray. And it begins where every prayer should begin, our Father. I'm really glad you're here today. It's good to see you all. We're, we're in this series, Walking with Jesus. And today, we're going to talk about if we're going to learn to walk with Jesus, it won't happen unless we're walking with him prayerfully. So the question I think must come up then, <clears throat> not only does he teach us how to pray with this model prayer that we've just heard again, but how important was prayer to Jesus himself? Well, Mark opens his gospel in chapter 1 with a glimpse at, at the prayer life of Jesus. In Mark 1.35, it says, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. This is the first of many such images that we have of, of Jesus in the New Testament going off to pray. In addition to all of those, he gave thanks for food, he prayed at his baptism. He prayed for the multitudes. He prayed with his disciples. He prayed alone by himself. He prayed at the tomb of Lazarus and life was restored. He prayed for those souls that were entombed in spiritual death that they would find life in him, and they did. <clears throat> he prayed for unity in the upper room, courage in the garden of Gethsemane, and forgiveness from the cross. He prayed early in the morning. He prayed at various times of the day. And on occasion, he prayed all night long. Philip Yancey wrote, he said, Jesus counted on prayer as a source of strength that equipped him to carry out a partnership with God the Father on earth. Herbert Lockyer writes, Jesus loved to pray. Prayer was a part of his life and was as involuntary as his breathing. Prayer was his regular habit and his resort in every emergency. You cannot study the life of Christ and not come to the conclusion that prayer was the very heartbeat of his daily existence. And if you forget everything else, remember this, he prayed for us too. He prayed that we would believe in him through the message of the apostles that would be proclaimed and ultimately written. And so I don't need this morning a better motivation to improve my prayer life. If the very son of God, if God in the flesh depended upon prayer for his daily life and ministry, then who am I? to think I can survive without it. So we have our Lord's own example of prayer. We have this glorious model prayer that he gave us to teach us how to pray. But in our midst of talking about prayer, we often overlook the attitude that we're supposed to have in prayer. And that, that might just be the most important part, our attitude in prayer. 
Now, to grab the attention of his listeners, Jesus was a, he was this master storyteller. And he told these parables. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm reading through the scriptures and I'm reading all the things that Jesus is talking about, and then I come to, and Jesus told this parable, I immediately sit up a little straighter and I'm a little bit more alert because I love his stories. And to introduce the story that we're going to take a look at uh, today in Luke chapter 18, the good doctor introduces it with this comment. Luke 18, 9 says, To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. You see, Jesus wasn't just a master storyteller. He was also a master at confrontation. And in this case, a simple but surprising parable confronts those who demonstrated a self-righteous attitude toward God in their prayer life and a public aloofness to those around them. You see, our attitude in prayer really does matter. You can follow the model. You can follow the example of Jesus. But if our attitude isn't right, something's got to change. Here's the parable. <clears throat> Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but bent his, beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus took a common story and created an uncommon outcome to teach an uncommon lesson. Now, to understand the power of this parable you got to understand the characters who, who take center stage. So let's take a look at the two main characters of the parable. And the first one to take a look at is the Pharisee. Now, since the time of Jesus himself, the very word Pharisee has a negative ring to it. Our English adjective, Pharisaical, grows out of the haughty, hypocritical attitude of this self-righteous religious group. And I'm telling you, nobody today ever feels good about being called Pharisaical. However... What you need to know is that the Pharisees didn't start out that way. For the most part, they were members of the middle class. They were humble and sincere in their desire to follow God. And they started this group to be closer to God, to follow him better, to do their uttermost to make him the top priority of their lives. It was a great goal. But by the time Jesus started his earthly ministry, the Pharisees had evolved into an elite group with an indignant attitude. Now, not every Pharisee was that way. There were some good Pharisees. Nicodemus was one. Joseph of Arimathea was another we find in Scripture. But the group as a whole had lost their original intentions. What was good to begin with had been lost and had fallen through the cracks as their group became this elite leadership group in Israel. Now, we are quick <clears throat> to turn up our noses at the Pharisees. We're, we're pretty quick to say, boy, I don't want to be a Pharisee. I wouldn't want to be like that group. But 
Have you ever started off with the best of intentions and something that you wanted to do and then somewhere along the way, pride derailed what we were going to do and we've lost our authenticity? Maybe we ought not to be so quick to condemn. You see, we too can be hypocritical and haughty, always finding the faults in others without finding the faults in ourselves. <laughs> I, I tell you, I'm really good at seeing what's wrong with you. <laughs> Not so quick to see what's wrong with me. You see, sometimes, sometimes I have to come to grips with, grips with the fact that I'm, I'm more like a Pharisee than I am Jesus. Sometimes I walk more like a Pharisee than I walk like Jesus. So before we throw the Pharisees under the bus, maybe we ought to take a quick look inside and see, who do I really look like most? Well, the tax collectors, the other character in center stage here, are actually off in the corner. Some translations call him publican. Okay, uh, And that's a word that means collector of public revenue. So whether your translation says publican or tax collector, it's the same thing, all right? And regarding tax collectors, our negative perception falls right in line with our first century counterparts. By the way, is there any period of history when the title tax collector brings a smile to people's faces? Some years ago, <clears throat> Elsie and I were in Washington, D.C., and we were touring uh, the city by bus, and we passed by the dreaded headquarters of the IRS. Even the tour guide paused as he glanced at the drab stone building, unfortunately built with Indiana limestone. Oh, how could we? <laughs> and he said, this is the most hated building in Washington, D.C., I, there was a cold chill that just ran down my spine as we drove past. Did you hear about the dying man who asked his best friend to be responsible for his ashes? And the best friend said, well, yeah, I'll, I'll do that. But what do you want me to do with my, your ashes? And he said, this is what you do. Package them up in a big brown manila envelope. Send them to the IRS and write on the outside of the envelope, now you have everything. Now, honestly, I have known some really wonderful people who worked for the IRS, great people, authentic people, but they always lived and worked under the shadow that they couldn't shake of the IRS. But if you think our discomfort with tax collectors in the IRS in America uh, is bad, <laughs> we can't even begin to hold a candle to the attitude of the Jewish people of Jesus' day. They literally hated tax collectors because these were Jews that had abandoned their own people to work for the hated Roman government. And because there was no accountability and there was plenty of opportunity for fraud, they lined their pockets with the hard-earned cash of fellow Jewish citizens, and so they were despised in every aspect. And because they were constantly in contact with the Gentiles. You see, the Romans, the Gentiles, because they were so much in contact with them that the Jewish people felt that they were spiritually defiled all the time. Therefore, even if a tax collector had been an eyewitness to a crime, 
His testimony in a Jewish court of law was forbidden. And a tax collector, a Jewish tax collector, if he wanted to give a gift to the temple, his gift was rejected. He couldn't even give money to the temple. They wouldn't take it because they thought it was defiled. Now, I can't go that far, okay? Uh, I, I mean, to, to me, the money is neither good nor bad. The person giving it may be defiled in some form or fashion or may have gotten it in some other way, but, but the money isn't good or bad. My philosophy is the devil's had it long enough, let God have it for a while and see what God can do with it and make a difference that way. But the Jewish people wouldn't. A good, respecting Jewish man would never ask a tax collector for change because the minute that money fell into his hands, he felt he would become unclean. So when Jesus started out the story, his audience would have expected the Pharisee to be the hero and the tax collector to be the villain. Boy, were they surprised by the end of the story. God has a way of surprising us. Have you ever noticed that? <clears throat> Sometimes surprises from the Lord come from all different directions. <clears throat> Just this last week, a sweet lady who has attended here on occasion asked the question of one of our members because this was what she understood. She said, I've always wondered. She said, I, I was told that Tim Thompson is Tom's son. Is that true? Now, that came as quite a surprise when I heard about that. And uh, you, you see, what had happened, what had happened was that when the lady was here, she had asked about Tim, and somebody said, oh, that's Tim Thompson. <laughs> that, and she had misunderstood. It wasn't her fault. She just misunderstood. But I think the thing that broke my heart the most was that she thought I was old enough to be Tim's <laughs> dad. I love Tim, but I don't want to be his dad. <laughs> you see, the, the theme of this parable is authenticity. And there are some characteristics of authenticity that come to bear. Sometimes God surprises us with things we need to see and learn because we've missed them along the way. Prayer may be the setting for the parable. But the heart of the story is not about how or where or what talking to God is all about. It's about the heart and the attitude of the one who is doing the praying. It's about being authentic and genuine before God in his presence and in the presence of the populace. You see, nobody likes a fake, especially the Lord. One of the best gifts that you can give to your family or to the family of God or, or we can give to the public in general is a life of authenticity. If every one of us would just practice the golden rule, do to others as you would want them to do to you. And that, one, that one simple statement from the lips of Jesus, if the world would simply practice that, it changed the world. Just that one. You see, authenticity really makes a difference. Former Congressman J.C. Watts wrote, he said, character is doing the right thing when nobody's looking. There are too many people who think that the only thing that's right is to get by, and the only thing that's wrong is to get caught. If God cares enough to take up residence in our lives through the Holy Spirit like we talked about last week, then his presence demands my highest integrity and authenticity. 
And in this parable, Jesus points out three characteristics of an authentic life that might surprise us. Characteristics that will guard our prayers if we'll live like this. They're easy for me to talk about. Just they're not easy for me or for any of us to practice. Here's the first one, humility. When you look at the parable, this is what we see. One looked around and prayed about himself. One looked down and prayed for himself. When it comes to prayer, some close their eyes and others lift their eyes heavenward. Some bow, others stand. Some sit, some fall on their face. You, you see, there is no right way to pray. But there is a wrong way to pray. And that's by looking around to see who's watching and listening. Kids are notorious about this. Have you ever been around the, the dinner table and you, and you pray? And after the prayer, one of the kids says, She wasn't keeping her eyes closed during the prayer. <laughs> Not realizing that they had to have their eyes open in order to see that she didn't have her eyes closed in the prayer. We're, we're, we're sort of like that as adults. Sometimes we're looking to see who's watching and listening because, well, we just like a pat on the back every once in a while. Remember what Jesus said about genuine prayer in the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew chapter 6, he said, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Oh, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is, in, uh, who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. The Pharisee made quite a show of his prayer time. He stood and he looked around the temple court area, which is, by the way, the only way he could have seen the tax collector over in the corner if he was looking around. And he began to pontificate loud enough for all to hear. The New International Version says that he prayed about himself, but the, but the better way to translate that phrase is he prayed to himself. He sought nothing from God in his prayer other than maybe a pat on the back from the Almighty. And while God only appears once in his prayer, the pronoun I just fills the whole conversation. Any adoring glances from worshipers within earshot, well, that, that was his full reward. In contrast, the tax collector didn't look around to see who was in attendance. He slipped over into a corner. He didn't even look up as if he was afraid to make eye contact with the Almighty somewhere in heaven. He simply looked down in humiliation, beat on his sinful chest, and asked for something that only God could provide. Thus, God was honored by that faith. He didn't pray for money or greater respect or a faster chariot. He prayed for God's mercy. And I suspect his prayer was whispered in the corner just so that only God could hear. But a whispered prayer in humility rings loud and clear in the courts of heaven. These words from Romans are worth remembering daily. Romans 12, 3 says, Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought you see, pride goes so much deeper than simply bragging or boasting. Pride is the delusion that I'm the most important person. I'm at the center. I can handle anything else without anybody's help. 
Even insecure people who would never boast or brag can be guilty of pride. Pride is when we think we're it. We're the bottom line. Humility, on the other hand, is the antithesis of pride. Humility is not self-deprecating. It is not a phony facade that appears humble but deep inside really isn't. Humility is understanding this truth. I am not God. I'm not totally independent. I am not the most important. I'm not at the center. I'm seldom in control. I need help and only help that God can give. And remember, God answers your prayers through humility as well. So you come in a humble spirit before God And when we ask in that humble spirit, God hears loud and clear. When we can say, finally, I am not God. Maybe in some of the groups that meet where they go through all the 10, 12 different steps, the self-help groups, the support groups that meet, and and you've seen uh, how it goes. You know, they come in, hi, I'm John, and I'm this. And they say, hi, John. Maybe it would even be better enhanced if you'd walk into those kind of places and say, Hi, I'm Tom. I'm not God. Maybe we need a group to remind us that we are not the very center of everything that happens. And sometimes God loves to confound the proud with the answer from the simplest location. The story is credited to a Greensboro, North Carolina newspaper from some years ago. I don't know if it's true or if it's one of those urban legends, but it illustrates the point nonetheless. A semi-trailer got stuck, wedged under an overpass on, uh, on the interstate uh, or somewhere there in North Carolina, and the, and the paper reported on it. Uh, the, the records are called, the professionals are called in, and for all of the power of the records and the professional team, they could not get the semi unstuck from the overpass without potentially damaging the overpass to the point of catastrophe as well. And they studied this. Well, you know how those kind of things draw a crowd. Well, in the crowd, there was a uh, boy about junior high age, and he went up to one of the wrecker uh, professionals, and he said, I've got an idea. And the man said, not right now, kid, we're busy. And so he stepped back into the crowd. A little bit, a few minutes later, went over to another guy, said the same thing, got the same response. Finally went back to the original guy, said, I, I really do have an idea. And the man said, okay, let's hear your idea, kid, so we can get back onto the business. He said, why don't you let some air out of the tires? <laughs> and they paused, and they thought, oh, okay, uh, we, we didn't think about that. They let the air out of the tires of the truck just enough so that it took the pressure off the overpass. They were able to back the semi out and got it all squared away. Overpass was intact, and everything turned out fine. They re-aired the tires, and the semi went on. Sometimes God brings his answers to us in the most humbling of ways. He loves to confound the proud with an answer from the simplest perspective. Which means that sometimes we pray and then we say, oh, I don't think God's answered our prayer, my prayer. Is it perhaps because we haven't been humble enough to listen? We need to be humble in our prayer. We need to be humble enough to hear God's answer as well. Here's the second thing, and that is honesty. When you look at the two characters in the parable, one looked outward and assumed the worst, 
one looked inward and saw the worst. Not only did this Pharisee lack a humble spirit, he also lacked the ability to take an honest look at himself. He wasn't nearly as good as he thought he was, but then none of us ever are. Why, to hear him pray, you would have thought he was the best man that ever walked on the surface of the earth. Are we to conclude from his prayer that he never had a lustful thought, that he never lashed out with an angry tone, that he had never eaten a gluttonous meal? Had this Pharisee never misjudged somebody else's heart or, or spread malicious gossip? Why, hearing his booming and authoritative voice, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. Maybe he had a sweeping motion, but maybe he just kind of casually pointed back over here into the corner. Because you see, in his mind, the tax collector would have been all three of those terms. A robber, an evildoer, and unfaithful to his native land of Judea. The Pharisee had drawn an erroneous conclusion that as a tax collector, his temple prayer partner now was beyond the scope of grace. God, I'm not like this guy because I know you won't listen to his prayer. You see, the, the, the Pharisee's prayer was based on a false premise that really bad people can't find grace in the eyes of God. But that's a false premise. No one is beyond the scope of God's grace. Do you remember what Peter wrote to the first century church? 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is, slow, is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. But he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. That doesn't say everybody's going to be saved. It's just that God is holding out hope that those who are far away from him will recognize their sin, will repent, and will come home. The tax collector's prayer is not flowery or long, but like a double-edged sword, it has cut to the heart of the issue. He didn't whitewash anything. He knew who and what he was. He was a sinner. So am I. So are you. But sometimes, honestly, recognizing that fact is a little hard. Ironic, isn't it? The Pharisee who would have considered himself the most honest person in society was dishonest with himself and was dishonest with God in his prayer. And the man who all of culture would have seen as the most dishonest man of society was the most honest man in looking at himself and in his prayer with God. Without honesty, authenticity is impossible. Last thing, holiness. Of these two characters in the story, one was confident he couldn't be more righteous. One was confident he needed to be more righteous. The word Pharisee actually comes from a word that means separate. The Pharisees prided themselves on being separate from the average man on the street when it came to knowing, cherishing, and obeying God's word. Thus, they viewed themselves as more righteous than everybody else. The Pharisee in this parable was convinced that his holiness was as good as it gets, and he wanted everybody to know it. Jesus had something to say about that in Matthew 6. He says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen of them. If you do, you have your Full reward. You have no reward from your Father in heaven. And you say, well, do people really think that? I mean, are people really that brash? Well, unfortunately, some do think that way. Rabbi Simeon ben Jakai said, if there are only two righteous men in the world, I and my son are those two. If there's only one, I am he. Pretty brash. 
Maybe that's the kind of character that Jesus was dealing with on this day. If Jesus struggled, struggled with the self-righteousness of Pharisees, I wonder what he would say to some of us Christians today. Remember, there are a lot of people in our culture that have a lot of respect for Jesus, but they have little respect for his followers. Maybe it's because we walk more like Pharisees than we walk like Jesus. The tax collector moved away from the crowd and stood alone at a distance. His prayer was not for public ears. He had nothing to parade before the public's eye. He was in desperate need of God's mercy and forgiveness. He needed to be a better person. What a contrast between the two temple prayers and between the two men who prayed them. One boasted of his perfection. One confessed his imperfection. You realize the word holy means separate, but not in the pharisaical sense. The Pharisee who pridefully separated himself from others was not holy. The tax collector who humbly separated himself from the crowd in the temple in his desire to seek God was holy. Holy means to be separate from all those crash things in this world so that we can be more like God. It means to be separated from those things that will take us away or hinder our relationship with God. Holiness isn't coming across as a goody-goody. To the contrary, one cannot be holy without humility and honesty. All these are vital and they work together. If you want to walk like Jesus, if we're going to be like Jesus, we are going to have to have an authentic prayer life, which means that we have to do it humbly, honestly, and holy. Do you know how the parable ends? <laughs> One went home just the same. One went home justified. Early converts to Christianity in Africa, I am told, picked out their own little place in the vegetation, some spot in the thicket where they would make it their prayer corner. They got so used to going back and forth to that place in prayer that they would wear a path. And so everybody had their path to their little place where they would pray. And when somebody in their family or among their friends sort of became delinquent in prayer, it was pretty obvious because the path that they had worn started to cover over again. There'd be weeds or grass start to grow on the path. And so the gentle, tender way of these African Christians was to go to their friend and say, brother, the grass grows on your path pretty sweet way of saying, are you really taking time to pray? So Christian, let me ask you, is the grass growing on your path? Because if we want to walk like Jesus, we've got to do so prayerfully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as a broken people. Lord, I need your help to be better in prayer. I suspect there are others here the same. But even if not, Lord, I certainly know I need your help. I realize it is the lifeblood of our relationship with you. And that if it mattered so desperately to your son, then it has to matter desperately to us as well. Lord, help us to be authentic in our following, in our discipleship. Help us, Lord, to be humble and honest and holy. In Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.